Would you turn with me to the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel 11. This is one of the saddest and most poignant passages in all of the Old Testament. And it uh, explains for us the overshadowing of David's life from this point on. If you could chart the course of David's life through the uh, opening chapters of 2 Samuel. He is a king who conquers. But uh, from chapter 11 on, things change. Things get very grim. It all began in the spring of the year when kings go off to war. But uh, for some reason, David stayed behind. Perhaps he had official business to do. Or perhaps he was merely weary of fighting. But in any case, he stayed in Jerusalem and he sent his general, Joab, and the armies across the Jordan to do battle with the Ammonites at Rabbah. And David stayed at home. One uh, afternoon after he had taken a nap, he got up to walk on top of on the top of his castle. Most of the uh, houses in those days had flat roofs, and often in the uh, evening they would go up on top of the house to catch a breath of fresh air. David's house apparently had a commanding view of all of the city of Jerusalem, and as he looked over his city, his eyes happened to fall into a neighboring courtyard, and he saw a young lady taking a bath. And uh, the passage says she was very attractive. Now, if she uh, seems immodest to be bathing in her backyard, it's because they had no indoor plumbing in those days. And... Uh, these houses uh, sometimes were cool, and so they would go out into the sun to, ba- to uh, bathe. They have, as a matter of fact, just recently unearthed in the city of Oxib in Israel, a little statuette about three inches tall of a young lady with her hair let down over her shoulders sitting in an oval flat tub taking a bath. And this little statuette is dated at David's time. So apparently it was common practice. And uh, David inquired after her, we're told. In verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, It's difficult to know if it was wrong for David to inquire after her. He did have six wives, at least six wives at this point, according to 1 Chronicles 3. But uh, the further revelation that we have in the New Testament of God's ideal for marriage, one man and one woman for life, had not been uh, fully revealed, although it's certainly the seeds of it are found in Genesis. And it does appear that, uh, as Luke would put it, this is one of those times of ignorance that God overlooked. There were greater issues at stake, and so the whole issue of polygamy was not, uh, seems not to have been a vital concern at that time. Certainly there's no indication that any of the prophets ever cited David for a violation of, of this law. I have a friend who declares that, the, that polygamy in, the, in Old Testament times is really a provision of God's grace. Because uh, given the fact that uh, the male population of these cities was often decimated by war, there were always fewer men than women. And uh, therefore this is one way to make a place for, for a woman in a society that really had no place for single uh, single women. I, I'll leave it to you women that, to judge the merits of that uh, 
of that uh, argument, whether it's better to be on the streets or uh, one of a number of wives, only you can judge. But in any case, uh, it's really difficult to know whether David was wrong at this point, but he certainly was wrong to pursue the matter because the word came back that she, she was someone else's wife. And David knew the law. He knew that adultery was, was a sin, a capital offense in Israel at that time. And to make it worse, she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah was one of David's best friends. He was an old army buddy from the years when David was on the run from Saul and, and a number of men whom the author of Samuel says were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around David and they fought with him at his side. And Uriah was one of the inner circle, the 30, as he's called in Second Samuel, one of his choice uh, men, who uh, now was his, uh, uh, a general in his army or an officer in his army off fighting the Ammonites. Furthermore, Bathsheba came from a, a good family in Jerusalem. Her, great, her grandfather was Ahithophel, who was on David's cabinet. And so for a number of reasons, David should never have taken this matter any, any farther. But uh, he didn't stop. He says, uh, we read in verse 4, that David sent messengers and took her. And when she had come to him, he lay with her, and uh, she had just purified herself from her uncleanness. That is, she was at a time when she was most likely to conceive, and she did. Now, she doesn't uh, appear to have offered any resistance. Perhaps either fear or vanity influenced her. But... uh, Even though she didn't resist, David, of course, is the responsible one. He's the one who pursued the relationship. He was uh, after conquest. And in 5, we're told that the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Uh, I've always wanted to be a little mouse in the room at that moment when the phone rang. And uh, David picked it up and she said, this is Bathsheba. Guess what? I'm pregnant. Now, they both knew the law. They knew that adultery was a capital offense, and uh, the cat was out of the bag. Now, there was no way that they could cover this sin. Anyone in Israel could count up to nine, and they knew that her husband was off fighting a war in, in Transjordan. And David knew he was in big trouble. But uh, he was a bright boy. You don't get to be king by uh, being somebody's fool. And so he... He conceives a plot which he thinks will avert the consequences of this act. We read in verse 6 that David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. He had Uriah returned from the front ostensibly to make a report to David, but in reality so David could send Uriah down to uh, his house. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a present, that is a present of food from the king, was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Either he heard the palace rumors that Bathsheba had visited David, or... 
being a professional soldier, he would not go down to his house while his own troops were in the field. So he rolled his sleeping bag out on the floor of the guardhouse with the other uh, troops, and he refused to go home. And David panicked because he knew time was running out. And so he tries the time-honored expedient of getting Uriah drunk. In uh, verse 12, David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So the second attempt to break down his resistance failed. And now uh, David is in a high state of panic. He has to do something. And so he sends a letter to Joab in the hand of Uriah. Uriah, in effect, took his own death warrant to the front. It came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may, may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab actually uh, disobeyed David's direct order. David said, put him him at the front uh, where the battle is the most fierce, and then withdraw from him so that they'll kill him. And that was such an obviously treacherous thing for for Joab to do, he knew that he would be cast in the role of the villain, and so he he defied David's order. And instead, he uh, had gathered intelligence reports. He knew where the most valiant men were at the city of Rabbah, and uh, he put Uriah there so that in the heat of the battle, he was shot down. Joab was afraid that David would be angry because he had violated his command because uh, Joab's strategy had resulted in a far greater loss of life. It was not merely Uriah who was killed, but many other valiant men from Israel's army. And Joab was afraid. And uh, so he warns the uh, messenger to be sure and get the story right. Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He sent this runner off, as he apparently did daily, to report on the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished tell all the, uh, telling all the events of the war to the king, and it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He knew what David's reaction would be. David would say, you dummy. Didn't you study uh, the story of uh, Abimelech in war college? Didn't you know not to go so close to the wall? And uh, Job said, when, when he reacts like that, you just tell him, Uriah the Hittite's dead. So that's precisely what the messenger did. The messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead. Actually, quite a number were. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. 
Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to David, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and encourage it. Well, how hard-hearted can you get? Here's a man who uh, committed adultery with one of his uh, best uh, friend's wives, murdered his, his best friend, was responsible for the death of other innocent, valiant men in Israel, lies to cover the whole thing up, and when he's, uh, he makes his report back to Joab, he says, that's the way it goes. That's the fortunes of war. You win a few, you lose a few. Say la vie. And uh, it's just a good illustration of how far sin can take us. Sin is like that, you know. We, we think we can go so far and then we can cut it off. But short of repentance, we cannot. We're driven inexorably on. And we find ourselves doing things that we never thought we would do. If you had said to David a month before, David, you're going to murder your best friend, you're going to take his wife, you're going to lie and cheat and steal, and uh, you're going to be responsible for widows and mothers and children in Israel weeping, you're going to do that. He'd say, not, not I. I'd never do anything like that. But that, that's the way sin works. It'll get us. We think we can temporize with it and play around with things that, that we know are contrary to God's will for us, but they're not very serious, we think, and we can go so far and then put the brakes on. But we can't. Romans 6 tells us that. God will let us go on and on and on until our lives lie in waste. I helped a friend one time put uh, hydraulic brakes on his Model A. And uh, we put the system together uh, properly, but uh, somehow in welding the uh, brake pedal on, we didn't give it enough arc. And it wouldn't go all the way to the floor. And my friend, Harold Waterman, who was something of a kamikaze at heart, decided that the only way to adequately test the system was with a panic stop. And so we pulled out of my driveway, and he opened the thing up, and we were zipping along at a high rate of speed, headed toward the stop sign, and Harold slams on the brake, and nothing. And we went across uh, Loop 12, which is one of the busiest uh, highways around Dallas, through four lanes of heavy traffic, through the other side, through a fence, out through a field. And uh, if he hadn't run into a ditch, we would have self-destructed out there. And I often think of sin that way. You know, we think somewhere along the line we're going to pull on the brake and we're going to stop. But we can't. We can't. We're just inexorably drawn on into deeper and deeper sin. And we find ourselves doing things that, that we never thought we were capable of doing. And according to Scripture, that's God's doing. He just takes His hands off of us and He lets us go. That's His discipline upon us. As Augustine put it, the punishment for sin is sin. And that's where we find David. He's out of control. In verse 26, we read that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And perhaps she did. At least for the appropriate number of days, seven days. And when the time of her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. So they've uh, legitimatized the relationship. 
even though the thing was done in haste, it had to be done in haste because time was running out for them, they thought they were home free. Hot diggity dog, they thought. We did it. We pulled it off. We made it. But uh, the last line of verse 27 says, The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the months went by and nothing happened. David was home free, scot-free. But it's interesting to know that during this uh, period of time, David's life went from bad to worst. Uh, the events that are described in chapter 12, verse, verses 26 and following, all occurred between chapters 11 and 12. They're placed uh, out of uh, chronological order here because it's the Hebrew way to finish a story and then go back and pick up other events that might intervene. And so chapter 12 finishes the events of the Bathsheba story. But actually what happened in verse 26 and following occurred during the gap between chapter 11 and chapter 12, some six to eight months or perhaps longer. It says, Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have even captured the city of the waters, that is the citadel that guarded the, their water supply. So he knew the main... Uh, fortress would fall soon so he says in verse 28 now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it lest I capture the city myself and it be named after me that was the custom in those days so David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah fought against it and captured it then he took the crown of their king from his head and its weight was a talent of gold that's about a quarter of a million dollars in today's market and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head, probably the stone in this case. He placed it in his own uh, crown. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were, were in it. And he set them under saws, sharp iron instruments and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. It's really a, a, a massacre. A cruel and inhuman thing that, that David did to the Ammonites and so utterly unlike David and unlike Israel in their wars. He sawed them in two with saws, hacked them to pieces with iron instruments, ran them through the brick kilns, probably the ovens that, they, that their sacrificial victims were passed through in their sacrifices to their god Moloch. It's just so unlike David. The uh, New International Version tries to soften this by saying he consigned them to work with saws and axes and he caused them to make bricks in the brick kiln. But if you look in the parallel passage in First Chronicles, it says clearly he sawed them with saws. And I don't think you can mitigate this uh, hardness, harshness on the part of David. It just shows how far his sin has taken him. He's totally insensitive now to human hurt, human need. But uh, we mustn't think that God was silent during this time. David's conscience was at work, even though his cover-up seemed to be working as well. In Psalm 32, a psalm that was probably written during this time, David tells us what was really going on. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me my vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer someone has uh, defined our conscience as that still small voice that makes us feel still smaller and uh, 
In this case, David not only felt small, he felt sick. His conscience made him ill. And he really suffered. Though on the surface, everything seemed to be all right. Then some months later, we read in chapter 12, that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a stern, tough old prophet who, who never feared David or anyone else. And he came to him and said, and he posed to him an actual legal case. In those days, the king tried uh, cases. They were judges as well as kings. And he poses a case to him. He says, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. They made a pet out of this little, little lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger burned greatly against the man and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He was just incensed at such an insensitive attitude. Now you have to remember that David, uh, this is not a legal opinion. David is simply expressing his own indignation. Uh, sheep napping was not a capital crime in Israel. But David was just so, so uh, touched and so indignant over this thing. How could anybody do that to, to someone who loves a little animal like that? And Nathan, he goes on in the next verse to give his, actually the, the legal decision, the judgment. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. That was the law, according to Leviticus 22. The thief had to pay back the victim, four lambs for one. So David knew his law, and Nathan stuck his long bony finger right under David's nose, and he said, David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like this. David, I've given and given and given to you. What more could you want? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing this evil thing? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And to make the whole thing far more rep reprehensible, you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon, the enemies of God's plan to bring salvation to the earth. They were the agents for doing this, this terrible deed. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And one calamity after another struck David's life as a result of this action. He lost the unnamed newborn child that uh, Bathsheba was carrying. And, well, I, I guess the child was born by this time, but he died shortly afterward. His uh, firstborn son, Amnon, was killed by his half-brother, Absalom. His uh, second son, second oldest son, Daniel, apparently died somewhere along the line because he just vanishes from the scene. Absalom, his third son, was killed by Joab, his general in war. His fourth son, Adonijah, 
was executed because of treason, and it was just one blow after another that David received. And furthermore, Nathan says in verse 11, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And if you know anything of David's subsequent history, his, his house began to disintegrate from that point on, and one thing after another went, went wrong. He says, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. When, when uh, Absalom uh, revolted against his father and drove him from the throne, he took his wives, whom he had left behind in Jerusalem. And uh, at, Hith- at Ahithophel's council, he had a tent pitched on the roof, the very roof from which David had seen Bathsheba. And he violated his wives in broad daylight in front of all of Israel so he could prove his his claim to the throne. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no loopholes, no pleading his weakness or any special cause. He just said, I've sinned. I'm wrong. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Here's just another example of that relentless love of our Lord. He forgives the worst of us, and He forgives the worst that we can do. It's all based on the forgiveness that's ours because of the sacrifice which our Lord Jesus made. That's not, you know, an event merely in history. That's an event that transcends time. It's an eternal event. And on the basis of that death, God could forgive David as well as forgive us for the worst sin that we could commit. On a number of accounts, David was worthy of death. He was a murderer, mass murderer. He was an adulterer, and yet God forgave him. But um, Nathan said to David in verse 14, Because by this deed you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, The child also that is born to you shall die. So Nathan went to his house. And then what follows is this tragic story of the death of the child. When there was some hope that the child would live, David prayed for him. But when his servants announced in verse 19 that the child is dead, David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. That's really, for me, the saddest part of this uh, whole story. And what interests me is that David wept for the child until the child died and then he arose and he went about his business, not because he was calloused, but because he realized that God was utterly just in what he was doing. They had every right to take the child from him. Because he knew though he was forgiven, sin always has marks. It always leaves ineradicable marks. I heard a story once of a father who took his boy out to the barn and drove a nail in the wall. 
And he handed the boy the hammer and he said, pull the nail out. And the boy pulled the nail out. Now he said, pull the hole out. And of course he couldn't. And uh, what we learn from this story is that uh, whenever we temporize with sin, there are always consequences. It always bears marks, but we are still forgiven if we're truly repentant. There's no need to be defeated and disgraced and shamed because of some failure in the past. There's no reason to feel that we're going to be fruitless and ineffective and unuseful and unuseful in God's hands as a result of some failure in the past. We're forgiven and we can be set to work to accomplish God's uh, purposes in the world, but we may have to suffer the consequences of our actions, perhaps not as severe as David's. And uh, if you've committed some sin in the past, you don't need to fear that God is going to take your baby or if your child dies, it's not because of some judgment for sin in the past. David was a king and uh, he was intended to be a light to Israel and a source of blessing and an example, a supposed example of righteousness to the people. And so leaders are always much more responsible than others. He had greater light, therefore he had greater responsibility. But nevertheless, sin always has consequences that we have to live with. But uh, God in His grace gave him another child. Verse 24, we're told that David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And Nathan named him Jedidiah which means loved by, by the Lord for the Lord's sake. He was loved in the sense that he would not suffer the consequences of David's sin as the first child had. And you know, this became the son who was ultimately the, his successor on the throne. He was the next king. And Solomon gave birth to Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa and Jehoshaphat and so forth, on through the Judean kings and on through the period of the exile until you come to the Lord Jesus himself. And in Matthew 1, uh, Bathsheba is singled out as the mother of one of the children that, uh, that led, that was in the line that led to the coming of our Lord Jesus. So uh, here's an adulteress uh, married to, a, another, to an adulterer and a murderer and a cruel and violent man who, because he faced his sin and judged it and put away, was forgiven. And he went on. And his life was fruitful and useful. And God blessed this union. That's a remarkable thing. That's the kind of Lord we have. Now we need to learn from this that uh, we, we really can't play around with sin because we will be hurt and we will suffer the consequences. But on the other hand, we can be totally, utterly, completely forgiven. David wrote a psalm during this time. If you'd like to see it, it's Psalm 51. I want to read this in conclusion. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. You remember what David said when Nathan uh, told him the story? He said, this man ought to die because he had no compassion. David had no compassion on anyone. But here... He reminds himself that the Lord is loyal to us, faithful to us, because he's a compassionate God. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He couldn't forget what he had done. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. That's what sin is. It's it's self-assertion against God. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the unborn child. He had sinned against his nation. He had sinned against the men who fell at Rabbah. But but, uh, David sees exactly what sin is. It's sin against God. It's a violation of his love. It breaks God's heart. I've sinned against thee and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He had every right to judge David. And uh, this uh, crime that David committed, he says, is not some freak happening. It's in character because in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Not that there's anything sinful about conception, but it means that as he was born, he was born into the world, a sinful man. And on the other side, he says, God desires truth. Here I am a sinful man and God desires truth. He wants me to be the right kind of person. What can he do? Verse 7, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. He has to count on God's forgiveness. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. He had, when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, the writer tells us he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was afraid that he would lose his authority as a king. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a, with a willing spirit. That, uh, the Hebrew word means inclined. A human spirit that's freed from the tyranny of sin. Don't let my human spirit control me. Then... I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. You know what David learned through all of this? He learned God's ways. He learned how compassionate God is. And he not only experienced the forgiveness of God, but it changed David's whole character. He became a more compassionate man because he discovered the ways of God. He became a more forgiving man. And oddly enough, even sin is redemptive in that it can produce changes in us if we're willing to judge it and put away, put it away. If we continue on, then we're likely to uh, lose control and destroy our lives, as David nearly did. But anywhere along the line, we can stop and say, I'm wrong, I have sinned, as David did. I have sinned against you. Claim his forgiveness. And though we may bear the marks of that sin to the end of our days, we can still be God's instrument to teach transgressors God's ways. And help them to see something of the compassion and the love of our Lord. Let's pray. Will you keep your Bibles open to Psalm 51? And if in your own life you've been guilty of some sin that you've nurtured and nourished along, and it's led to deeper and deeper involvement, are you willing at this point to stop the direction that you're going and tell God that you've sinned? And pray the prayer that David prays in verses 2 and following. If so, will you do that? Father, wash us. Cleanse our hearts. Thank you for your understanding and compassionate heart. For being more forgiving of us than we are of 
certainly of others and even of ourselves. Thank you that you can do so not because you're soft, but because the penalty has been paid. Help us to know your ways. Deliver us from the tyranny of the past. Help us to turn from our failure and use us as as teachers to instruct others according to your ways. Restore to us, Lord, the joy of our salvation. Deliver us from the gloom and, and the shame of our past. May we walk in radiant spiritual health. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.